Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! Ahoy, hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan, thank you for being there. You've stumbled across the smartest show in the history of the solar system. Look at you, well done. This is where we unpack all the science secrets that are lurking around the universe. And this week, we will look inside your brain chatting to the brilliant scientist Nicola Morgan all about why our minds are amazing. And that is the thing, the lump of matter, it's not even flesh, inside your head, which is responsible for everything that you do, every physical action. So from the tiniest movement of your little finger when you're doing something very intricate to... And we'll catch up with Techno Mum about how sports stadiums are changing into the future. Online gaming again? That reminds me of something that's going to change the way we attend sporting events. What, video games? No, the internet. Or rather, the internet of things. And I've got your questions as always. This week, they are on voice boxes and viruses. It's all on the way in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start with this week's Science in the News. Some good news and bad news to start. Coral has regrown in record levels down under in the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. The north and central bits of the reef have the highest amount of coral there's been for 40 years. But the amount of coral in the south part is going down because of storms, bleaching and overfishing. So there's good news, but still some bad news. A way to go for the ocean. Also, you'll love this. People in a coastal town in Somerset in the UK say they are being driven around the bend by seagulls. Locals say that they can't use their gardens because the birds dive-bomb them looking for food first thing in the morning. They also squawk very early, and the flat roofs are the perfect breeding spots there for the gulls, which is drawing lots of them in to keep annoying people. And finally, more than 700 bird fossils from 55 million years ago have been given to the National Museums Scotland. The collection is believed to include many species new to science, with one being like a falcon, another being like a diver too. It shows the early evolution of modern birds, and now experts are going to pour over them to find something new. It's time to catch up with Professor Hallux now. He is a genius for what's happening inside your body. Hallux, and quite a lot of the time, his trusty sidekick nurse Nanobot, a look at why you might be ill and who makes you better again. He's looked up your nose, in your eyes, in your ears, in your legs, in your arms, in your heart. This week, we're still looking inside your mouth, talking about modern dentistry because it's so much better than how things used to be. You never need to worry about taking your teeth out with rocks or brushing them with twigs. But as you'll hear with Hallux, hundreds of years ago, that's what happened. Professor Halix's Digital Dental Depository, with support from Philips Sonicare. To honour great Uncle Halitosis, dentist extraordinaire, on the occasion of his 100th birthday, 
Professor Halleck is creating a pop-up digital dental depository, an oral health help desk. He's going to see how many questions all about teeth he can answer against the clock. I think the turbine's nearly up to speed. We're going on a historical heist today. Are you ready, Nanobot? I'm ready, so let's go. First question. How did people in olden times remove really rotten teeth? Well, back in the mists of time, if a tooth was causing pain, primitive man would simply smash it out with a rock or a mallet. Ancient Chinese dentists trained their fingers to be strong enough to pull the teeth out. Luckily, in more recent times, special instruments were developed. These are much more hygienic, which is important, because for many centuries, infections caused by tooth decay and extraction were a common cause of death. Another good start, Professor. Right, true or false? In past times, you would go to the barbers if you had a toothache. That's true. For many years, as well as cutting hair, barbers also performed surgery and would pull out teeth. That's why they have red and white striped poles outside. It's to represent blood and bandages. Yuck! Here's a less gruesome question. What did people in the past use to clean their teeth? All sorts of things. Twigs or rags were often used to scrape or wipe teeth. People would also use chalk and brick dust to get rid of any muck. Sometimes they'd mix salt with bicarbonate of soda for a frothy finish. The first mass-produced toothbrushes began to appear in the 1800s, using bristles from pigs. And by the 1880s, tubes of toothpaste were available. Not sure I like the sound of a piggy toothbrush. Oh, here's a good one. What would you use if you needed false teeth in the past? Well, some false teeth were made from wood and others were taken from the mouths of the dead. Sometimes teeth came from people who would sell their teeth for money. These days, false teeth are made from very high-tech plastics, which are so realistic, it's impossible to tell they're not the patient's own choppers. We're racing towards the finish. How long does it take to train to be a dentist today? Dentists are specially trained to be experts and have to study for as many as eight years before they can treat patients on their own. And with modern technology and medicines, your local dental surgery is a perfectly pleasant place to be. Not like the 18th century barbershop. That's correct. And time's up. Brilliant, Professor. Very respectable score there. And lots of data for our digital dental depository. Professor Halix's Digital Dental Depository with support from Philip Sonicare. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash Halix. Let's get to your questions then. And I've got a very special announcement, brilliant news about how you can star in the Science Weekly in the future and get your questions on the podcast. First up this week, from Ezra in Bedfordshire, who sent this in as a review over on Apple Podcasts. They want to know, how does your voice box make a sound? Well, Ezra, it works a little bit like a guitar string. You know that, where you pluck it and it wobbles and vibrates? That vibrations move the air, which makes a noise? Your voice box is very similar. It's made of cartilage, which are small bands of tissues. They're clumped together, they run up and down your throat, and you can make them longer or shorter. Now, when you push air through it, up from your lungs, it makes the bands vibrate like a guitar string that moves the air and that makes a sound. If you tighten the cartilage, if you pull it, it'll make a higher pitch noise. If you make it longer and slacker, you get a deeper noise. 
That's how your voice box works, Ezra. Uh, also this week from Rowan in Scotland, who wants to know, what do viruses eat? Well, viruses work by being a parasite, really. When you get infected by a virus, it goes straight for cells. It wants to hurt your cells. And it feeds off it, too. Now, there's something called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. It's a compound that gives your cells energy to grow, to double, to multiply and to move. And what happens when the virus gets stuck onto those cells? They use that energy. They use that ATP to make themselves grow. So it's a parasite. They are feeding off the organism, off the cell that they're attaching themselves to. Rowan, thank you for the question. Now, if you've got a question that you'd like to send in to get answered on the show, here is something very exciting. A way that you can star in this podcast. You can get your own voice played. All you need to do, get to funkidslive.com. Find this page on there. Find the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Then you scroll down and you'll see a little microphone. That is where you ask your question. So you record it as a voice message on your phone, use your mum or dad's, whatever it is, and ask your question. Say your name, say how old you are, where you live, and then ask me your question. Send it over to this podcast's page at funkidslive.com so I can find it, I can do the digging and answer, and you might be the star of this part of the show next week. It's funkidslive.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This week, we're having a look at perhaps the most important thing in the world. What's going on inside your head? There's a brand new book out. It's called 10 Ways to Build a Brilliant Brain. It's been written by Nicola Morgan, who joins us now. Nicola, thank you for being there. Hello, thank you very much for having me. So uh, all we really know about the brain is what it looks like. It seems like a grey, squidgy, wet mess. Uh, How important is the brain for us? I know that sounds very obvious, but really what's going on? You're right. It is a grey, soft, squidgy mess and also very vulnerable. If we didn't have our skull to protect it, 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 it would really be very vulnerable. And when I do a talk in school, I always start off by, well, first of all, firstly, I warn them that I'm about to do this, but then I show them an actual photo of a, of a brain that's just come out of a skull, which is not something you normally see. Normally, we see more diagrammatic pictures. And then I say, you know, look at that, talk about how wet it is. And that is the thing, the lump of matter. It's not even flesh inside your head, which is responsible for everything that you do, every physical action. So from the tiniest movement of your little finger when you're doing something very intricate to, to running and all of the physical skills you have, but also every mental activity, everything you know, everything that's happened to you, every memory, but also every mental skill, your ability to add numbers together and, and read, all of those things, and your ability to have your, your emotions and your thoughts and your dreams and your hopes and your looking ahead at the future and looking back at the past, all of that happens in that squidgy soft mess of matter in your head and that that just um it it blows my mind so what's actually going on 
in your brain as, as much as we know. So when I'm thinking something, if, like you said, I wanted to lift my little finger, what's going on in that grey, squidgy mass up there? Um, electricity, in, in a word. So electrical reactions are going on. Messages are being passed super fast through vast networks of links between your brain cells. But those links, those networks, you've created them all. So when you're a baby, when you're born, when you're newborn, you have basically all of the or almost all of the neurons that you're ever going to have. In fact, in some ways, you have more than you're going to have later on. But they're not or many, most of them are not connected up. So a newborn baby can't do very much. And if you it's really interesting, if any listeners have got a baby brother or sister, or if they know um, any family that's got a small baby, get to know that baby and watch them learning. So as they try to do things, they are physically growing those connections in their brain. So every time we try to do things, every time we have a thought about something, every time we mentally revisit a memory of something we did, we're using the connections that we've already made by doing that thing before. And every time we do it, we're making those connections, those pathways and networks stronger and more efficient, which is why people say practice makes perfect. It doesn't usually make perfect, if only, but practice hugely makes us get better at things. That's all that makes us get better at things. There's no magic wand. So all the time in our brain, we're doing stuff. We're never not doing something in our brain. Even when we're asleep, our brain is working. And it's what it's doing is building connections and filtering memories and establishing longer memories and having ideas and having thoughts and putting them all together. How come we don't get tired by that then? So if I'm running, 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 my legs, they'll get exhausted. If I'm thinking all day, what's happening in my brain that's keeping it going? Yeah, well, we do we do get tired and our brain uses an enormous amount of energy. Our brain actually uses, for the, for the size that it is, as a proportion of our body, it uses more energy, more fuel, in other words, more food than any other um, equivalent size part of the body. So our brain does get very tired and if we didn't sleep, then that would be a huge problem. While we sleep, as I said, our brain is still being active, but it's being active in in different ways. There are parts of our brain that have effectively switched off and are properly resting. And during sleep, our brain, some cells in our brain called glial cells, do a, a very important job of cleaning everything up, removing debris, getting rid of old cells, getting rid of broken connections. So things that we were struggling with during the day and that we were getting wrong maybe, then the glial, glial cells will clean that up during the night. And there are various other chemical things going on in our brains and our bodies while we sleep, which allow us then to wake up in the morning refreshed and ready to do another day of loads and loads of, of activity. But also I would say that you get more tired if you carry on doing the same thing over and over and over again. It's good to break it up. So if you've been doing some work at the screen, it's good to break that up then with going and doing something else, going and kicking a ball around or or chatting with your friends or something. So varying the activities also helps us not get tired. So one part of our brain can be having a rest while another part of our brain is working. I often think about where we imagine things, where we like the cinema screen in our head, because if you close your eyes and try and remember something that's happened, it's not really happening on a big screen. It's happening everywhere. What's happening there, Nicola, with our ability to make pictures in our brain? Where is it happening? 
Well, some people find that a lot harder than others. Some people say, the first thing to say actually is that we can't really tell very clearly what's in somebody else's mind. We can only know what's in our own mind and we can look at some physical things that go on on brain scanning machines, but that still doesn't really tell us what's happening in someone's mind. But some people say that they can't do that thing that you've just said of visualizing, that they can't pull up um, mental pictures. But when we do do that, we're using various parts of our brain, including our visual centers. We couldn't pull up in our minds a visual picture of something that we've seen or that we've experienced if we weren't using the visual centers of our of our mind. So that's happening. But then we're never, when we're doing anything, we're almost never using only one part of the brain. We'll be using other parts as well. So in that scenario that you've just um, described, we're probably also using a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is terrifically important in humans. It allows us to do a whole load of the activities that we believe are mostly or completely only human things. And one of those things is imagining and visualizing. So those are at least two parts of the brain that we would be using when we're doing um, that activity. Now, in the new book, it's 10 ways to build a brilliant brain. It covers 10 different things that happen in your head and around your body with what helps it out up there. So let's just cover, I guess, diet for now. We're we're hearing a lot more at the moment about what we eat and how that really affects the way we think about things. Can you just tell us more about how what goes into our gut? Yeah, so I think the most important thing to remember about that and I'm kind of when I say the most important thing I'm always thinking oh but there are lots of important things how am I going to pick the most important one Um, I think the most important thing is not to try to focus on any one type of food because there's lots you'll, you'll read lots of things to say for example blueberries or nuts do amazing jobs with helping your brain work well and those two things are probably, yes, very good for your brain and they probably do have a good effect. But if you then think, oh, well, I just need to fill fill my stomach with blueberries and nuts and I'm going to have a brilliant brain, that's not going to work. What we need to have most of all is the most varied, widest type of diet possible. That's the only effective way of getting all of the nutrients that that we need to feed our brain. But our brain also needs energy and energy comes from calories. So again, we can't expect our brains to work very well if we just eat celery or cucumber, which they're very good for you, but they don't have a lot of calories. So we have to fuel our brain. Our brain um, needs energy, but it also needs lots of nutrients to not just learn and remember and concentrate. Remember, concentration is really important for learning and we can't concentrate very well if we haven't had the right um, kind of food inside us. But we also need to make sure that we've got enough water. We need to have enough protein because our brains are also made of protein. And so we've got to repair the cell cells throughout our body and, and in our blood and everything. So we need to make sure that we have enough. So don't starve yourself, don't restrict your food when you're wanting your brain to work well, um, and to have enough of a variety so that we can make sure that we get all of the nutrients that we need. That's just one little snippet of what's in the book. It's called 10 Ways to Build a Brilliant Brain. Nicola Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And may your brains all become more brilliant. 
For this week's Dangerous Dan, where we speak about the most mean, cruel and deadly things in the world, let's have a look at the longest snake in the world. The reticulated python makes its home around Asia through Indonesia and down to the Philippines. They can grow to a whopping 10 metres long. Now, they're quite slender too, and they're pretty much made of muscle because when they grip, when it constricts, they grip, they constrict and they don't let go. Now, they look stunning. They are green, brown, with black and yellow diamonds all over normally, and they're incredible climbers. They race up and down trees, squeezing themselves around branches and getting ready to attack. Now, the way that they climb and get higher is amazing. They, they hold onto one branch and then they kind of launch themselves upwards. They throw their neck through the sky to wrap around another branch higher up. They're kind of fishing up the tree. Now, normally they eat monkeys and apes. They tried to stay away from humans, but like so many dangerous creatures we've heard about here, if you get too close, if they feel frightened, they will leap out and they'll wrap around anyone. They will squeeze and they will squeeze. And with the world's longest snake, they've got quite a lot of body to squeeze with, which is why the reticulated python goes straight onto our Dangerous Dan list. It's time to catch up with Techno Mum now. We're hearing all about sports in this series. Perfect timing. We've got a brilliant summer of sport. We've just finished the Commonwealth Games here in the UK. The Premier League season has just started. We've got the World Cup coming up. England's Lionesses won the Women's Euros. So it couldn't be more perfect timing to hear about how Technology improves sport and Techno Mum knows everything. This week, it's all about how the places athletes compete in is becoming pretty high tech. Techno Mum's Sport Technology. Sam's excited about the summer of sport and the family are having a sports-themed barbecue. That's if they can get the gazebo up. Hold that flap, it's going to blow off. Just trying to get it attached to the leg. There, that should do it. And just in time. Looks like it's going to rain. And that's why we have a gazebo, to keep us nice and dry. Or to give us some shade if it gets too hot. Whew, this is hard work. Imagine building a massive sports stadium. As well as making sure facilities for the athletes are top-notch, the spectators will expect to be comfortable as well. Absolutely. Stadium and venue designers have a lot to think about. They need to make sure each building does a great job. They have to be accessible to everyone, with enough space for the events and seating with good views. Different countries face different challenges too. Countries that are prone to earthquakes, like Japan, have to use design innovations to make sure venues can withstand the violent shaking, like rubber bearings under the roof to absorb shocks. And I imagine designers will also have to think how to keep people warm and dry. And sometimes cool. Keeping the temperature just right is very important. The National Stadium in Japan uses adjustable wooden battens in the roof to direct natural wind into the venue, whilst the Beijing Aquatic Centre was built with a bubbly outer layer which acts like a greenhouse to keep things warm. Solar power is better for the environment, right? That's right. Sustainability has never been more important, and we see it used increasingly at the forefront of sports. As well as generating power for lights, heating and cooling fans, solar panels can also create hydrogen which is used to power the buses and cars that transport competitors around. Talking of power, we're going to need some more briquettes for the barbecue. Come on, give me a hand. Online gaming again. That reminds me of something that's going to change the way we attend sporting events. What, video games? No, the internet. 
or rather the Internet of Things. What's the Internet got to do with going to see a race or watching the match? The Internet of Things is how we can connect physical objects or services by sharing data. From booking tickets for events to tickets for the metro, data is shared to make things seamless from your home to your seat at the stadium. Your mobile phone can find the quickest route, the next bus, pay the fare, let you choose your seat, and even order and deliver refreshments when you get there. That's cool. And I guess with tens of thousands of people at large sports events, it'll help things go smoothly. Correct. Face recognition software can help pull it all together. So you might not even have to show your e-ticket. You just walk through a scanner. As well as avoiding queues, it's safer too. But if everyone's relying on their phones and the internet, you're going to need a really good signal or the system will crash. Even when I'm in town, I can lose the signal sometimes. It's a good point. 4G doesn't cope very well with large crowds or built-up areas. But many countries use vast online clouds and a new turbocharged 5G network. That helps ensure an incredible amount of information can be whizzed around between athletes and coaches, spectators and venues. And the people videoing the events and the referees talking to each other. Everyone. The people selling refreshments, the security guards, even the train guards. They're all able to be connected up to create a smooth and exciting experience for all. Almost as exciting as our barbecue later. Almost. Let's just hope the rain clears off. Techno Mum's Sport Technology is created with support from the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash technomum. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. We've made a huge announcement. Our voice memo feature, the way you can star in the show, is open. If you want to get your voice played, if you want to ask me a question, you need to get to funkidslive.com. Find the Fun Kids Science Weekly page on there, record a message for me, let me know who you are, where you're from, how old you are, then ask me your question and I will figure it out for you. I cannot wait to hear your question next week. Send it to me, funkidslive.com. Now, if you've enjoyed this show, we've got loads more podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!